This passage we uh, deal with is one of the most precious and yet historically one of the most controversial in all of the New Testament. Every time we preach on grace, we have two reactions. The broken sinner rejoices in the news. The one who has been hurt by the sinner or the one not really aware of our own depravity usually is made somewhat angry by grace because we don't feel people should be let off the hook. We're not gonna solve this problem today because the church has been dealing with it for 2,000 years. My prayer for you is that you have joy today rather than anger. I'm convinced something is radically wrong in the hearts of too many Christians. Specifically, we tend to believe in the grace of Jesus in theory. And yet over and over again, we deny it in practice, applied to ourselves or applied to others. And so today I want us to hear again, a Christian is not someone who is good. A Christian is a person who has experienced the goodness of God. Only Jesus is good. When will we understand Jesus did not create the church for a refuge for the super spiritual or the morally elite to the exclusion of those who can't measure up. Jesus came to heal those of us who know we don't have it all together. Who are still unable to throw away those false support systems of sin and yet who come again this morning thirsty for the living water of hope and forgiveness and new beginnings that Jesus is more than anxious to give us. My deepest desire in, in leading our church family through all these years is that every time we come together, I want us to have an opportunity to experience again the outrageous love of God and to grow in our knowledge of that love. Because that love is so often eclipsed by the heresy of judgmentalism, legalism, coldness, formality, and all of the baggage many of us carry from our past. We need to know that our view of God impacts how we view ourselves and how we view others and how others view us, thus how others view God. That's why the Bible talks so often about knowing God as Jesus revealed him. And Jesus gave us the electrifying news that God is a loving father with arms open to the sinner, not a vindictive judge, just anxious to zap the sinner. In fact, the Bible says where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. That's God's heart. So our drama today is a kind of fiber optic camera that enables us to look right into the heart of Jesus on matters of sin and guilt and punishment and grace. And as we look at Jesus together, we're going to see what God is like. And that's good news. Scribes and Pharisees dragged this nameless woman to Jesus after she was caught in the very act of adultery. Accusers stand ready with rocks in hand to put her to death, according to the law of Moses. But in reality, the whole scene is a crock. Roman law prohibited Jews from putting anyone to death. And what's more, it takes two to commit adultery. And where was the male partner in this scene? 
You see, Jesus recognizes this for what it is, a potential trap set by the uptight religious leaders. If he forgives the woman, he denies his claim to be a friend of sinners. If he pardons her, he can be accused of condoning adultery and breaking the law of Moses. And you know that tension still exists in the church. What did Jesus do? He refused to pass judgment. He stooped and wrote in the sand, and we know not what, and then rose saying, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. A lot of drama because it said, with the eldest being the first, the crowd walked away. The eldest meaning they've had lived the longest and had the most opportunity to sin. And then Jesus turns to the woman and asks, where are your accusers? God speaking, because that's who we believe Jesus is. Neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. The reason that this passage is so difficult is that it breaks with a lot of our formulas. The woman didn't walk the sawdust trail in repentance. Actually, she didn't repent at all yet. Jesus gave her forgiveness without a lot of the preconditions we put on it. And it causes the church all kinds of trouble. So I want us to allow this story through the Holy Spirit to just give us a fresh chapter of the grace of God because I believe to some degree every one of us need it today. And first, Jesus reveals how truth must be coupled with grace or we distort the character of God. There was truth in this scene, but grace was missing. Jesus injected it. Truth in this story is the woman was guilty. According to the letter of the law, she deserved death. And then Jesus comes along and brings something new to the scene of judgment. He combines grace and compassion and mercy with the truth of her guilt. Thank God. You see, he's modeling God's heart, and it was new. And yet it wasn't new. The Jews should have read the Old Testament where it says God is slow to anger, abounding in unfailing love. And he doesn't deal with us as our sins deserve. That's the part we can't wait, get through our heads. God doesn't deal with us as our sins deserve. Particularly if we've been hurt, we want somebody to pay the price. Jesus stands in sharp contrast to the religious leaders who found sadistic pleasure in demanding this woman's punishment. But you see, by their attitude, they were telling lies about God. God is not a vindictive judge anxious to punish sinners. He's a father with his arms open wanting sinners to come back home and get healed. Oh, if we could only apply that to our own guilt. Oh, if we could only apply that truth to those who have hurt us. It's hard. Dr. Watson of Fuller Seminary rightfully points out how this story was deleted in many early manuscripts. If you've ever read the Gospel of John carefully, there's always a little note that this was not really the original spot for it. You know why? Because from the earliest years, the scribes considered this passage too dangerous. They never doubted its authenticity. But they believed the grace Jesus gave to this woman would be misunderstood and used as a license for immorality or whatever. And the church has been worried about that ever since. Grace frightens us. But I don't know why. Because fear of punishment that the Old Testament was loaded with didn't do a very good job keeping people from sinning. Why are we so worried that grace is going to do something worse? 
that strange fear of grace still persists, particularly when it comes to sexual sin. How long will it take for us to understand that, that God loves us as we are? And as Brendan Manning reminded us down at Mount Hermon, he loves us as we are, not as we ought to be, not as we ever will be, at least until one day when we stand at the feet of Jesus. And to be a Christian is to live in the joy and freedom of knowing God's love is not based on our performance and it doesn't go away, although as sin, even as Christians, we can't stop sinning. Brandon Manning writes, Christians should be the most non-judgmental of peoples. They get along well with sinners. They're aware of our lack of wholeness, our brokenness, the simple fact we don't have it all together. And while we do not excuse our sin, we are humbly aware that is precisely what caused us to throw ourselves on the mercy of the Father. We do not pretend to be anything more than what we are. Sinners saved by grace. And that's the church. Always has been. I find this drama of Jesus giving mercy the most accurate picture I know of in the Bible of the heart of God. Although Jesus never ignores the seriousness of our sin, his goal is not to punish. His goal is restoration, mercy, and new beginnings. He doesn't want to reject you. He doesn't want to condemn you. He wants to save you. That's why he died. As we grasp through faith, our Lord's unbelievable, as I call outrageous mercy and grace, purchased at the cross at the cost of his cross, what should that do? Give us license for sin? No. It should lead us to repentance, to finding forgiveness, encourage to pick up the pieces of our lives again and again and again. And although we can't stop sinning every time we do and we look at the cross, we get a new motivation to continue that journey and never quit until one day we stand at his feet. Because you see, God is never gonna give up on you or me. Love and gratitude, I offer, are far better stimuli, stimuli for living obedient lives than fear and threats and false pictures of the heart of God. And that's the truth in this story. A second lesson, though, Jesus reveals, offering grace without truth distorts the character of God. Truth without grace distorts it. Grace without truth distorts it. The truth is... The woman is guilty. But the revolutionary truth Jesus is unveiling is that God's love is greater than her guilt. That God's love is not rooted in our performance, but in our need. When Jesus let her off the hook, he wasn't just having a laissez-faire attitude towards sin. He's revealing the incredible truth. God would rather die for us than live in heaven without us. That's truth and that's grace combined. To be saved, to be Christian, to be born again, to be transformed is to accept this truth. We will never be good enough to be part of God's forever family, no matter how hard we try or how many resolutions we make. The only way we'll be good enough is to accept the free gift of grace made possible by the cross of Jesus. That's gospel. And it's so clear, a child can understand it. And through the centuries, we always want to add something of performance on our part to complete the equation. 
Because of what this story reveals about the heart of our Heavenly Father, I offer that this is the reason we Christians should be celebrating every time we come together. Joy should permeate our worship, our daily lives, our faces should radiate the fact we have been forgiven. We've been lavished upon by God's love. And that our Father loves us before we shape up. He doesn't stop loving us when we fall. That no matter how many times we sin, we can come back home and find forgiveness. That's not license for sin. That's love. That's God's love. Accepting acceptance, allowing God to embrace us in our sin, is the step of faith that saves us. And brothers and sisters, that's why our worship and our coming together should be so filled with joy. Formal, cold, lifeless, boring worship is the antithesis of Christian worship. I want to affirm again, though, for those who get concerned here, because I'm concerned, this truth is not saying sin doesn't matter to Jesus. Broken hearts and lives caused by breaking God's laws always matter to him. It hurts the victim and it hurts us. And the fact that sin caused the cross of Jesus makes sin matter. The whole point is grace came in Jesus and it's greater than our sin. And that's what we just have to work like mad to get into our brains. Accepting this grace leads to rebirth and transformation. Let me see if I can show you how this process of truth and grace and grace and truth work. Remember when Nathan the prophet accused David of adultery. David didn't deny. He didn't make excuses. He simply said, I have sinned against the Lord. The law said David should have been stoned. Nathan, God's prophet, responded with the truth. God forgives you. He lets you off the hook, even though you're guilty. This unconditional love propelled David. It propels us on a journey from the truth of our brokenness to the transforming power of the grace of Jesus. This good news of grace was articulated by the poet. I love to read this all the time. How I wish there was some wonderful place called the land of beginning again, where all our mistakes and all our heartaches and all our poor selfish grief could be dropped like a shabby coat at the door and never put on again. And you know, there is such a place and that's the foot of the cross of Jesus. The cross of Jesus means everyone has a chance, a second chance, if we believe in the outrageous love of God and if we're willing to accept it because we're aware of our need. So I trust that those of us who come to worship feeling guilty, crummy about ourselves, not once, but maybe a little bit every week, those of us who can't keep our promises, those of us who can't stop sinning, that we'll experience the comfort of letting God love us and hearing his words, and this is so shocking to some, but it's so true. God said, I never expected you to be perfect in your own strength. I love you as much when you're trapped in some sin as I love you in those rare moments in which for a short time you obey me. Rest in my love. I'll never, never cast you out unless you want to be. There's a new version by Peterson of the great prayer David offered in repentance after he committed his sin with Bathsheba. Listen, generous in love, God give grace, huge in mercy, 
Wipe out my bad record. Scrub away my guilt. Soak out my sins in your laundry. I know how bad I've been. My sins are starting to stare me down. You're the one I violated, and you've seen it all. What you are after is truth from the inside out. Enter me then. Conceive a new true life. Don't throw me out with the trash. Put a fresh wind in my sails. And I'm happy to give you the good news today. God doesn't throw anybody out with the trash unless they want to be. He lets us know how much he treasures us, not when we are what we ought to be, but when we are what we are, sinners saved by grace alone, and we'll never be anything else. I want to close with a story from Brendan Manning. It's a parable. It's not a Christian parable, but it contains a Christian truth. A monk was being pursued by a ferocious tiger. He raced to the edge of the cliff, spotted a dangling rope, and grabbed it. He stared down and saw huge rocks 500 feet below. He looked up and saw the tiger poised atop the cliff. Just then, two mice began to nibble at the rope. What to do? The monk saw a strawberry within reach. So he plucked and ate it, saying to himself, that's the best strawberry I've ever eaten. If he had been preoccupied with the rocks below, the future, or the tiger above, the past, he would have missed the strawberry God was giving him in the present moment. The point for this morning, God doesn't want us to focus on the tigers of the past. They've been defanged. They've been forgiven. Nor in the rocks of the future. He's in control. But only on the strawberry of grace that he brought you here this morning to receive as unbelievably good as it sounds. And God offers all of us his grace if we will reach out in faith and take it and believe it's greater than our sin. That grace leads to new beginnings. And that, my brothers and sisters, is what the gospel of good news is all about. I'd like us to take just a few moments. I don't know what you brought with you today, but I believe worship should always be a healing time of casting away and beginning again. And maybe you need to do that this week. I know I do. Why don't we take just a few moments of prayer and let this uh, grace soak in a little bit and leave here free and forgiven. Would you pray with me? Lord, for some of us, it almost is too good to be true that you can forgive sinners like us, even though we fall into it again and again. For some of us, it doesn't seem fair when people have hurt us so much that they can get forgiven. Lord, you know all this stuff going on in our hearts. Help each one of us to focus on one thing. We're a sinner saved by grace. And we're so glad your arms are open, ready to receive us this morning, the moment we're ready to come back. Thank you that you don't stop loving us. You never give up on us, no matter how far we stray. Lord, give us the joy of that truth, and may we carry it with us all week long. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.